Omnibus is a production of iHeartRadio. Receiving this message. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is The Omnibus. Accessed entry 1229.mt1125, certificate number 35551, Winifred Sackville Stoner Jr. You want to know the common element for the entire group? Like he asked, I'll tell you the answer. I'll tell you because I had that one carbon. Carbon in pencil lead is in the form of graphite. In coal, it's mixed up with other impurities. And in the diamond, it's in hard form. Well, all we really wanted to know was the common element, Donnie, but thank you for all that unnecessary knowledge. <laughs> Kids, heads so full of useless knowledge. Thank you, thank you. And the book says we may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. I don't think, uh... Listeners of my time would be surprised to hear that I was a universally lauded, self-proclaimed smart kid Hmm. when I was in elementary school. I bet you were a smart kid. Were you the smartest kid in your class? Do you remember when a class had a kind of generally understood smartest kid? Maybe that's still true. I think it, maybe it is still true. There's definitely kind of a, I remember a kind of a competition, like you knew who the, who's the the, the ones were vying. Right. I think in my case, it was a big part of my identity because my parents were really dead set on getting me into kind of a gifted kids program right. here in Seattle Public Schools. So I had to go do tests where I would do puzzles. and. Was it the DIG program? What was it called? Ooh, I don't know if I can remember, remember what it was DIG? called. What did, did DIG stand for something? Something. I was in DIG. I was going to ask if you were a smart kid because I assume you were also a smart kid. Even though you yeah. have stories of having to hang out with the middle, the junior high principal. Because you were such a... I was uh, a discipline problem. Right. But the only reason I survived to this day is that I was a smart kid. Although in elementary school, in my elementary school, there were the two kids vying for like teacher's pet, mm-hmm. smartest kid status were Lori Basler and Dominador Gobeleza. Dominador? Dominador. Uh, Filipino. Have you mentioned Dominador on the show I before? I bet I have, yeah. And Dominador was, I think, the smartest but Lori was certainly extremely smart and maybe just wasn't, Dimitador had just that sharpness. Mm-hmm. And then I was third and I was the loose cannon, the one that was maybe the smartest, but not 
You were most likely to squander his talent, maybe? Right, that's exactly (laughs) what it was. It was like, they never knew when I was going to come out of left field with, like, the right, the big, big right answer. Uh, But most of the time, I was just sort of slacking. But I think it was test scores. I think test scores, I was the smartest. Yeah. Somehow, like, there's a series of, like, very uh, specific tasks that if a kid just happens to have the knack for, the establishment can just see and will decide that they are the future of the species. On the Iowa basic tests, mm-hmm. I had 99s across the board. And we that did was, Iowa too. Why was why is Iowa uh, synonymous with don't know. standardized testing of the 1970s? It really was. But you know, the SAT, like the whole, I graduated as we've discussed, right? Last in my class from high school. I was absolutely like, there were 10 or 15 kids who had higher GPAs than I did who failed to graduate. Mm-hmm. But I was a National Merit Scholar because of the SATs. So it was always that, the tension between those two things. I was a, I was a up, but also was going to make it. Or if I wasn't going to make it, it was, I really, I really had to work to squander. You're, you're right. You, you were going to skate by on aptitude, which is, you know, <laughs> really laudable. Which I'm still doing. <laughs> but you were top of your class, I'm guessing. Uh, not in high school. I'm salutatorian, so, so runner-up, I guess. I like how there's a word for not as smart as Diminidor. So it was, you You were second yes. class but valedictorian? As, but as a very young kid, I remember kind of having the curse that often comes with some of these smart kids is having a very dutiful and doting set of parents. Right. So I had a, a mom who was always the one telling the principal, hey, um, even though he's in kindergarten, he needs to be in a higher reading group. So I got shuttled off to the highest classroom in the oh. school, the third grade classroom. But that will destroy a lot of kids and it didn't destroy you. <laughs> Apparently not. Like the third graders were sports about it and was like, hey, it's this mascot kid. Right. And didn't seem to mind me. But I remember also my mom, after some art teacher had kind of chewed out my work at some point, I remember at breakfast one morning, my mom being like, where's that, hey, where's that picture you drew the other day? And I'm not knowing what she wanted to do, handed it to her. And it turned out she had gone to school and been like, look at this picture he drew of Han Solo in the cloud city of Bespin. Look at it. Look at the likeness. Are you telling me that this is the kind of student who should be getting chewed out by the art teacher? Yeah. She was a little over-involved. I guess. I don't know. Did you have a mom who was ever uh, hassling your principal? Uh, My mom did go down in the case of my sister and say, because she, the sense was that there was a teacher that was just picking on Susan for whatever Mm, reason. My mom went down and had, again, my mom, all about documentation. She had uh, homework assignments where Susan had been marked wrong on things that were demonstrably right. Like just math problems. I mean, stuff where mom could prove it. She had receipts. And she had, uh, and the teacher was, I guess, brought down to the principal's office and censured in some way. But no, she never, no one ever went to bat for me. uh, Seems like you were all right with your Iowa test aptitude. Well, yeah. And the assumption was that any trouble I got into, I deserved. Honestly, my wife's cousin's kid was one of these kind of high school screw-ups. And, uh, but he tested really, really well. And they were finally told, hey, just let him screw up. He's going to have to figure it out at some point. Basically, he's got the test scores as a backstop. Right. The kid eventually got into the Air Force Academy on a fencing scholarship, I think. They whipped right. him into shape. You know, these these kids generally end up doing okay. But I do kind of cringe looking back at myself because it becomes such a part of your identity when you're constantly told in a million small ways that 
that you are the, the bright boy. You're the, you're the bright boy. You're the shining light. I got into college on a special program. Uh, a Jesuit school had a special program for, for bright boys, for bad boys uh, that had like Father Flanagan's boys. I was, yeah, it was bad boys that had good test scores. That was their program, and I and I did. I was never going to go to a college. Why is there not a Long Winter's record called Bad Boys that had good <laughs> test scores? Like that's kind of your that's your rock ethos too. But my sense of you is that you wouldn't have been a teacher's pet because you're a little bit. I'm more of a class clown. Yeah, you also little, you realize smart kid is not the best no. uh, social identity. Right. So you got to fall back on something else. And a lot of smart kids, because they're quick, they can fall back on funny, funny kid. Yeah. Right. I mean, um, neither Dominador nor Lori Basler were especially funny. So I had that side. You got that sewn up. But did you ever have a a true class clown to vie with? Someone who who only had funny, who wasn't also gifted. Whew, that's a good question. You, you I, must have I, been... So I, I, I think I've, I don't know if I've said this on the store, uh, on, the, on the omnibus before, but in, <laughs> there was a class clown in my first grade classroom. I think it was, I think it was Eric R. Eric mm -hmm. T was kind of the mean one. Yeah. It was either Eric R or Eric M. We had three Erics. And the morning of May whatever, 1980, Eric R leans over to me during the Pledge of Allegiance and he whispers, Mount St. Helen blew its penis yesterday. And I started laughing so hard. Like to this day, it's one of the funniest things anyone's ever said to me. Mount St. <laughs> Helens blew its penis yesterday. <laughs> uh, so there, know, there you were, have never said that on the show, no. There were, you'd remember. I would, yeah. <laughs> there were, <laughs> so there were kids who were just funny who really made me laugh. But being the prodigy is a little bit tough. Like it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Sure, a lot sure, of these, sure. So it probably pushes a lot of these kids to do good work. But aren't they always coming at you because you know, they're coming at the king? <laughs> I don't know how you imagine elementary school works, but it's, it's not quite as adversarial as that. I mean, I went to school in Alaska. It really was, you know, you were bare food. I think what happens more often is kids will hit the wall. Like they'll realize, because they've been skating by with little effort, at some point they'll hit the the calculus class or whatever it is that, yeah. where they cannot just skate. That's what happened to me. And then they're like, oh, well, screw this. Yeah. Or, you know, in my case, I don't, I did hit that. But I guess what I constantly deal with is... Um, kind of a watered-down kind of imposter syndrome where I feel like I had all this early promise. Yeah. And I did turn out, you know, I turned out fine. Yeah. But it kind of feels you like... turned out like smartest boy in the world. <laughs> what are you talking about turned out fine? Right, but it's all, it's all parlor tricks. Like, I didn't found a company or write the great American novel. You know, there were no, there was no... It turned out there was no genius in me. I just found out how to leverage that, my Iowa test abilities right. for good. Right. So it turned out I was clever. But merely clever, you know, and in, so in some way I have not lived up to whatever the potential was that, right, right, that right. my parents and the We're, DIG program saw. In, invent the sock vaccine. <laughs> right, exactly. But you did get a blue ribbon at the county fair. I got a blue ribbon on Jeopardy, which is kind of America's county fair, yeah. like a big pig. Now, did you ever have another bright kid who threatened to knock you off your pedestal? Yeah, a lot of kind of... Um, Grinds? Is that, yeah. what, is that, is that kind of the... Ooh. There's your Fonzie uh, English. Ouch. Ouch. I mean, and that's exactly right. And the problem with Dominador and Lori Basler is I couldn't really accuse them of being grinds. They truly were smart. You should have gone to high school in Seoul, Korea. Yeah, maybe. Filled with, you know, just these bright, hardworking, you know... Fresh -faced, prairie dogs of tomorrow. Scrubbed. These, yeah, these, um, you know, a lot of them Asian-American kids. 
I was not valedictorian because Chrissy Co had a 4.3 GPA. How is that even possible? It's not. Shouldn't it stop at four? It does. But she was at 4.3 some. I think they waited if you took um, a certain number of AP classes or something. Would you have gone to a, uh, I mean, would you have been accepted at an Ivy League school if you had wanted to go? I got into Stanford, so I think I could have gotten into Ivy. And why did you go to BYU instead? I went to UW uh, out of high school. And it's because I wanted to come back to Seattle where I had. Right. Always wanted to live and had never been able to. Get get close to those mud honey shows that you never went to. <laughs> I sensed I sensed a, a, a dawning of a new kind of culture up here in 1992. And I said, I'm going to go to Seattle and never go to a show. You sensed the dawning in that it was on the cover of Time magazine? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was more like, these sub-pop labels will eventually start to turn out like power pop and folk bands, and then I'll be more into it. That's right. I was waiting for the second wave. But uh, this... This thing of being a child prodigy is very common. And I, I was, I've always been struck by the story of one Winifred Sackville Stoner Jr. You've known about Winifred for a long time. I've known of one of her accomplishments. She did one thing that we still know today, which I will get to. And I, I believe it will survive in the Futurelings era I love, as well. I love her name. It's not a name you would typically hear. Even the hipsters that are naming their kids like... Uh, Beatrice and... Uh, right, we haven't got to Bertha or Hortense. Right, Bazika. Or Winifred. But you don't hear Winifred The Fred much. at the end, I feel, is a real disincentive. That's right. To be a woman named Fred. That's the problem with Bertha. I'm sure someone listening to the show right now is either named Bertha or has named their child Bertha, and they're thinking, what's wrong with Bertha? But really... It, the pendulum will have swung back 10 times or 100 times by the time anyone listens to this. You know, for a while, all the Britneys were grandmas. And all the babies were Bertha's. And then it flopped. And then right. it flopped again. You know, so it just keeps the Heathers and the and the Winifreds just keep changing places. My my school bus uh, when I was at YMCA camp in 1975 was named Bertha. The bus was named Bertha. Yeah. Does that all just go back to the, the gun, I guess? I guess. Whatever. The first person who said Big Bertha just ended Bertha as Well, a no, name. that's the thing because the gun was named. Somebody came up with that before the gun, right? I guess. You think Big Bertha predates Big Bertha as a gun? I think so. I think they named Bertha Big Bertha the gun. Well, we'll talk about Big Bertha on a future omnibus. We'll get into this. Uh, the thing that interests me most in her name is the junior. Ju oh. We do not see junior much in... True. Junior, junior and senior are kind of an Americanism, by the way. It's not, they're not used that way in other parts of the English-speaking world. Is it always two world. and three? Yeah, maybe that's more likely. Or... Uh, you know, it, and there's no laws regulating this, but typically right. if, you, if you have the exact same name as your parent, you're a junior and they're a senior. My um, dad was a junior, but he never went by that. And you're not a third. No. Well, in my understanding, and I don't remember whether I read this in some Miss Manners compilation in the 80s, but your number reflects how many of those generations are alive. So if your name is uh, John Smith, and your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was John Smith. You're not John Smith the sixth. You're only either a second or a third if your grandfather is still alive. I know you said that on the Omnos before. I have? Yes. And oh. I'm still confident that it's wrong. Is that right? I think. How many times do you do you go to a law firm and the guy's name is John Smith the seventh? There, but there are people named John Rockefeller the fourth or fifth or whatever. I mean, oh, I, I really, do they put that on their, on their letterhead or do we just refer to them colloquially? No, because the Gilligan's Island killed it. Like once it became a millionaire cliche right. to be, have an awful number after your name. I'm the third. And by your theory, I should be junior by now because my grandpa died in the nineties. Yeah. You go up one. <laughs> you, you advance until death. 
Did it, really, in your family, the name Ken Jennings is su- such a powerful name that it's like, we can't, we're not going to ever let go of this. <laughs> oh, except you named your son Dylan. I could have been, he could have been Kenneth Wayne Jennings the fourth. What a, what a Gen X move that not. was. So nothing about the definition makes it verboten for a woman to be junior named after her mother. You just don't see it a lot. And named after her mother with her mother's married name. That's true as well. That makes it tricky. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's, her name's exactly the same as her mother's, but her mother's as it is now. Interesting. The most famous uh, junior woman in American history is probably Eleanor, Franklin Eleanor Roosevelt's only daughter, who often went by Anna Eleanor Roosevelt Jr., Interesting. Interestingly, she was uh, the women's editor at the Seattle PI for a while. Which That's I, PI which, for post-intelligence. Which I did not know. Um, you knew post-intelligence, or you I just did. didn't I know. I just didn't know. Eleanor Roosevelt's daughter edited their um, their decor page no, and I, recipes. I didn't either. <laughs> Isn't that odd? What was she doing here? Uh, and recently, Serena Williams named her daughter Alexis Olympia Ohanian Jr., Named after whom? <laughs> <laughs> no one. Her, fa- her the, the father's name is Alexis Ohanian. Olympia is a new middle name belonging to no one. Olympia. So she is Alexis Ohanian Jr. after her dad, I suppose. Right. Although with a different middle name. Uh, mm, well, I mean, you're entitled to name your child anything you want, right? Listen, hey, in this day and age, like... I believe women can do anything, including have the letters J-R dot after their name. You go, girl. Well, I mean, if you can if you can be named Good Luck Jonathan and ascend to the presidency of your nation, I suppose you could. I feel like it's easier to become president with a name like Good Luck Jonathan. Good Luck Jonathan. You could just name your, your next child, which surely you and Mindy are planning. Oh, absolutely. You could just name them like... Quiz Winner Jennings. If we have a surprise baby in our 50s, it will absolutely be named Quiz Winner Jennings <laughs> Jr. How would you how would you spell Quiz Winner? That's a great name for a wizard. Quiz It's spelled with a KW like like Kwame. It's yeah. like kind of a it's a nod to Africa, the continent we all But pronounce call it home. Quiz Winner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's actually pronounced Quiz Wiener. <laughs> When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout well i guess uh winifred sackville stoner jr implies the existence of a winifred sackville stoner senior Right. And that, uh, in fact, is true. Mother Stoner was kind of an educational celebrity of the early 20th century. Where did they live? They lived all over. Her husband, uh, Winifred Jr.'s father, was James Buchanan Stoner, a uh, U.S. Army surgeon, a colonel. So they would 
move around to different postings. Um, if, as you follow them around the country uh, in census records, you can see that Winifred Sackville Stoner, uh, her biographical details do not always line up with the newspaper accounts of her life. Huh. For example, her age keeps changing downward every 10 years in the, in the census. I mean, uh -huh. it does not literally go down, but it does not go up 10 years either. She'll, <laughs> she'll self-report aging three years between the 1910 and 1920 censuses, for example. <laughs> she will claim in newspaper accounts to be the descendant of uh, a landed British subject named Thomas Sackville. Very or, popular in America. Or in one account, even uh, the famous Lord Lionel Sackville West, who is a... Uh, the emissary from the ambassador from the court of St. James to Grover Cleveland's administration. I remember him well. If that was true, she would in fact have been the aunt of Vita Sackville West, the famous author and lover of Virginia Woolf. Oh, However, cool. none of this is true. She was making it all up. Her name was Pauline Winifred Stoner. Oh. Or sorry, Pauline Winifred Sackville. So her daughter was not even a junior. And she had kind of falsified her whole past as she moved from town to town, including uh, in 1910, Port Townsend, Washington. There we are not, again. Not far from here, where her husband was in charge of the, the military hospital. As she moved around the country, she and her young daughter got very into a popular movement of the time, Esperanto. Oh, sure. I mean, they sound like eccentrics. They are educational faddists, right. for sure. And Winifred Sr. becomes the first head of the Women's Auxiliary of the Esperanto Association of North America. She brings her young baby daughter, Winifred, to the very first U.S. Congress on Esperanto, which is kind of this utopian idea of how much peace and brotherhood there will be if we can all speak this odd, Slavic-inflected language right. invented by a Russian named <clears throat> Zamenhof. We will surely cover Esperanto in the omnibus, so let's not go too deep. It's hard to believe we haven't, considering that the Esperanto poster I have in my downstairs bathroom. Yeah, you do. Uh, I can confirm. We, we got, <laughs> in fact, you know, we got a note this week from someone saying Esperanto is probably too obvious for omnibus. We should do Volapuk. Oh, Volapuk. With an umlaut, which I guess is a less successful International version language. of Esperanto. Yeah, the hipster's Esperanto. I should say I that, the, that the Esperanto poster in your bathroom is not something that you got at Ikea, but is an actual vintage gathering of Esperanto speakers. In Montevideo, Uruguay. <laughs> which <laughs> right. is so great. <laughs> I don't know why it exists, but I'm delighted that uh, I found it for my bathroom. And so while Mother Stoner is interested in these educational fads, she starts to put out a monthly pamphlet called Mother Stoner's Bulletin mm -hmm. and a series of books propounding her theories of child rearing with names like natural education, that's kind of her her school of thought, sounds natural like, education. Sounds like one of those preschools where all the kids are naked. <laughs> right, and, and, and playing with toys only made of natural fibers uh -huh. and uh, unstained woods. We don't believe in children wearing clothes until they're 14. Uh, other books called Arithmetic Through Play, Games with Aims. Natural mm -hmm. education, uh, apparently, by her own account, was just uh, focusing your maternal love so intently on your one child that they could not help but become a genius. Sort of the opposite of Montessori. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, she never sent Winifred Jr. to any kind of public school, in oh, fact. she just uh, poured her maternal love onto her. Yes. Uh, she was very angry when Teddy Roosevelt, uh, you know, who had a large, boisterous family, would encourage Americans to have large, boisterous families because she knew that the only way to raise up a generation of Esperanto-speaking geniuses would just be this laser-like focus 
on your one amazing child. Well, and also it would uh, represent the death of the zebra <laughs> in, in the world if there were all these Roosevelt families. <laughs> yeah, think of, all the, think of all the animal heads on walls. We will talk about Kermit Roosevelt on the omnibus too. He's on my list. A lot of, uh, a lot of foreshadowing in this entry. Yeah, we're going to get a lot of letters. Since why don't you do Kermit Roosevelt? Since you can listen to these in any order, Futurely, since all these episodes were recorded a thousand years ago, why don't you stop right now, listen to volume book, mm-hmm. listen to Kermit at Roosevelt and come on back. Should we pause while they do that? That's very offensive. That's like minstrelsy. (laughs) Mother Stoner also has two patents, which are delightful because you like old timey medicaments and stuff. I do. So this is for you. Are they, uh, are they 99% alcohol with a little bit of opium in them? She patented a kind of candy wrapper, which she then sold to the Newark Paraffin and Parchment Paper Company. Is that, is that the kind of candy wrapper you can eat? Do you remember those little Japanese candies? Yes. They were just made of rice fibers. Is that still a thing? It must be. I, you know, in the seventies when entertainments, I mean, before nacho cheese, when entertainment was was limited to like banging rocks together, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of candy where you could eat the wrapper just thrilled us to no end. It turned into a gluey mess in your mouth. Yeah, it was terrible. I feel like it, my parents leveraged it as a way to get us to go eat Asian food, something that children in the 70s did not want to do. That's true. I didn't want to do it. And But, you know, the fact that you could eat a candy with the wrapper on, mm-hmm. what a delight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a bit really, of a novelty. It really, it really gets <laughs> into something very deep in kids. Uh, I think she, I think... Um, she also patented some kind of skin powder. But anyway, her claim to fame in all these accounts is her amazing daughter, Winifred Jr. This, the, Winifred Jr. confirmed all of her mother's weird teaching styles because she became a prodigy. Yes, and always self-reported by mom. So very difficult to actually pick out Winifred's actual accomplishments from her mother's manipulations, because this is all very self-serving. She's only going to get quoted in newspapers about the power of natural education if Wilfred is amazing. So, Wilfred? Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, Wilfred. Wilfred. Sorry, Winifred. Sherry, I guess, if Winifred is amazing. But uh, she's already been documented as only aging three years every ten so she's yeah, an she's a Highlander. witness. Yeah, yeah we, we know she's a bit of a charlatan, right. which is why I would take some of this with a grain of salt. But according in her mother's account, by the age of one, Winifred was not just walking and talking, but was reciting Tennyson's Crossing the Bar. <laughs> Maybe you were walking and talking at age one, but were you reciting Tennyson? I wasn't. Not even Charge of the Light Brigade, your I, favorite poem? I was walking and talking by one, according to my own doting mother, <laughs> but was uh, did not have any posy. And was reading Virgil. She she could read from the Aeneid and, and the, or not recite, but she could recite Aeneid so that the lines would scan. Wow. By the age of two, she could read English and speak French. Mm-hmm. The age of three. <laughs> that, that could be a little awkward. <laughs> <laughs> she, it's not that she could only read English and only speak French. I see, I see. <laughs> yeah, she's, uh, she's Canadian. <laughs> She's like one of those speed limit signs. Except in, can, says in Canada, maximum. In Canada, it's, it's the opposite, right? right? They can all read uh, French, but speak English. A big part of her mom's method was to introduce her to educational toys. She also said that kids should have fun. You know, you should still be going on nature walks. And, you know, natural education means just being with your kids so much that everything you do becomes a learning opportunity. It's generous that, that kids should have fun. <laughs> right. She's not a... She's not a, a, a a stick in the mud. Right. That does comport with Montessori a little bit. Yes. Yeah. But but she would also introduce her to things that were clearly not toys. For example, she would always put a typewriter in her crib oh. and bright cutouts of all the letters and numbers and she would hold them up and, you know, instead of, you know, reading, she hated nursery rhymes. She would 
always talk about the frothy nursery rhymes and crooning senseless songs that the culture wanted her to read to the kids, you know, full of bad examples, children jumping over candlesticks and whatnot. Instead, she was <laughs> leaning over the crib saying, ours is not to question why, <laughs> ours is but to do and die. I mean, she would also just be holding up these letters and saying like, D, 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 D's nuts. <laughs> and then she would not say <laughs> D's nuts. And, and putting a typewriter in the crib. So by the age of three, uh, she could type Winifred, 60 words a minute. <laughs> yeah. Winifred could take dictation. She was on the typewriter. She was composing her first poems. Wow. By the age of five, her mom was taking her around to Chautauquas. That should be an omnibus. You know, my first band was named Chautauqua. Is that really true? Yeah, it is. That is very on brand. Chautauqua was my first rock band. There's a good Chautauqua joke at the end of the new Coen Brothers movie, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and I love Chautauqua jokes. I should say that my first band was called the Truly Awful Band, but my first band to have any recorded material was Chautauqua. It, were they tr- also Truly Awful, though? Uh, no, Chautauqua was good. Oh, okay. But we never... I didn't know what era. We, it was grunge rock era, so we were like strummy, jangly indie pop at a time when everybody else in Seattle was going, and we didn't See, this is what I was waiting for. I was waiting for the second wave grunge, and I just didn't know about Chautauqua. Yeah, we were there just jangling away. So stop right now, listen to John's Chautauqua show. That's right. And then we'll come back. They were just kind of traveling seminars. You know, you'd hang out in upstate New York with the Reverend... uh, Montague G. Fortescue, (laughs) and he would explain the educational theories of the ancient Romans. It's exactly the type of thing that people always say they want, right? A Chautauqua and the Chautauqua shows were just what, I mean, if, if, if you polled the omnibus, if you polled if you the future public radio listeners, yeah, people would say, oh yeah, that's exactly what I want. And, and oftentimes the promise of the internet was supposed to be that Ted talks were, it's true. Ted talks just are Chautauquas. Yeah. But people, Ted it turned out people don't really want them that much, as much as they want Netflix and chill. So uh, Winifred Sr. and Jr. would travel together. The dad disappears from the story very quickly, by the way. You can only imagine the kind of drinking that's involved at home <laughs> with this guy and his insufferable <laughs> wife and genius daughter. Uh, so uh, they're going around and, and five-year-old Winifred is teaching Esperanto at these Chautauquas to, to the learned men of the time. And is she just a trained like, horse? Like Jesus that, in the temple. That she can clop her foot uh, and do basic addition or is she truly... Is she testably smart? We don't know how much her mom is manipulating this, um, but she seems to be a gifted child. I'm sure she's getting pushed in all kinds of directions by her Chautauqua stage mom, perhaps the only one in America. Right. Um, But she's publishing poetry by six, by the age of seven. She's playing chess at a high level. That's when her first book comes out, the Book of Jingles, to which we will return shortly. Hmm. By the age of eight, she can speak eight languages, including Japanese, thanks to an enthusiastic Japanese border. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has a remarkable knowledge, says the Times, of history, Latin literature, geography, physiology, and rhetoric. You have known someone that could speak multiple languages, I'm guessing. Yeah, I speak a couple. Everyone in my family, I think, speaks a couple languages. Mindy does. A couple is not several. You We've need... established this already. Okay, so what you're saying, <laughs> this is not a couple three. I mean a couple two. I mean Ken couple, not John couple. What do you, what would impress you here? Three? Six languages. Can Have you ever met someone who could speak six languages? They don't all have to be like geniuses. Yeah, but... I feel like academics have to be able to read because they want to read the old text in their field, which means they kind of have to be able to piece together French, German, 
Greek, I, Latin. Greek, Latin. But I feel like speaking Spanish pretty well, I can kind of piece together port- written Portuguese and Italian on the fly and sometimes French. Right. So maybe by these low academic, you know, associate professor standards, maybe I could claim this. If you, you can speak Italian, you can speak Romanian as long as you get your, your suffixes right. You know who always gets asked this? Every commercial break, while they while Jeopardy stops down, someone in the audience wants to know how many uh, languages Mr. Alex Trebek speaks. How many does he speak? Well, you know, when he reads the clues, he's always hyper-correcting. He's always like, in uh, Giuseppe Verde's <laughs> Il Trovatore. <laughs> but it's all just a parlor trick. He doesn't speak any additional Well, he studies pronunciations every morning before he reads the clues. Right. He speaks, He's uh, as an Ontarian, he speaks English and French fluently. And he says... He always answers it the same. He says, I can speak uh, English and French fluently, and I can mess around in several more. Yeah, I say that too. But all that means is I can order a beer and sure. get a hotel room in it's like survival skills. 14 languages. It's giving right? directions to cabbies and uh, asking where the ticket office is. But I have known people that could speak six or more languages, but it's it's German Dutch and Danish. Oh, they're cheating. Which, but I mean, you know, they, they get one and then they can get the others. And then it's French, Spanish, Italian. They've learned the adjacencies. Yeah, right. And then if they can speak, if they can, I mean, Slavic language would be hard to do. But if you could learn a Slavic language, you could probably pick up five. Well, Esperanto would have solved all this, John. That's right. Or Volupuk right. to a lesser degree. <laughs> uh, at the age of eight, she also, by the way, publishes her first Esperanto book. Patrino Ansarino, mm-hmm. which, I, as I'm sure you know, as an Esperanto speaker, is Esperanto for a mother goose. <laughs> it's the first ever translation of the mother but goose wait, poems, which her, which her mother so hated. Right. Nursery it, rhymes. I think once they're Esperanto. See, her mom hated rhymes, but she knew that uh, she was always exposing Winifred Jr. to poetry. And she feels that was a big part of her success, that she just had the rhythms in her, the cadences in her head. Right. So the point is to make the poetry uplifting and fortifying so that yeah. instead of hearing about um, a kid's Tom Tom the Piper Stun stealing a pig, what if we had poems that could teach us good things? Well, all of the nursery rhymes are all encoded stories of like the English Revolution, right? And, and oh, def- that should be an omnibus entry too. Yeah, boy, Futurelings, you've got a lot of work to I do. I think a lot of that is revisionism. I think I want to do an entry where I push back on all this 20th century assumption that Ring Around the Rosie is about the bubonic the, the plague. plague right? I don't, I actually think a lot of that is not true. Do you, who do you think wrote Shakespeare's plays? I think it was not William Shakespeare, but someone else of the same name. <laughs> Did you have that line already? My dad always says that. I don't even know where he gets really it from. Great. So the stoners loved the, uh, rhymes as a genre. They just thought it was a wasted opportunity to use rhymes to teach kids. I see. So together, Winifred, mother and daughter would compose. Her book of jingles is just a series of edifying poems where instead of learning about a piper son who steal pigs, it's like, what if this poem was about the life of uh, Johannes Brahms or about the human skeletal system or learning the French alphabet? Oh, I have to say that they sound like terrible cocktail party guests. Yeah, absolutely. Like all educational faddists of this time, you would want to avoid them at all costs. But I'm looking through the table of contents of her, of a uh, Winifred, 1915 Winifred Stoner Jr. collection, Facts in Jingles. She's pictured with her trained bird, Okiku-san. Mm-hmm. So there's the Japanese uh, cropping up. And, uh, you know, it really is. It's, a, it's biographies of Hector Berlioz. Uh, and it's about the uh, armadillo's skin, how mother learned natural history, 
One day while sitting on the beach, talking of child training, with a most learned pedagogue from whose lips were raining great torrents of most wondrous lore among upon most subjects known, my mother learned one little fact this wise man did not own. So is Winifred really writing this stuff? Is her mom hmm. putting it in her mouth? How, how did these two not start a religion? Because this was also the time when, when kooks like this would have decided that they had some divine understanding, right? Maybe they're just a little too late. Maybe 50 years earlier, this would have become theosophy or Adventism or, or Mormonism or whatever. But instead, in the 1920s, in this new age of forward-thinking efficiency and our new future built on science, what you do is you come up with an educational theory. Right, I see. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. While we're looking at facts in jingles, it contains the only work for which we know Winifred Sackville Stoner today which is a series of couplets designed to help kids remember events in American history. This is it. This is her this is singular her magnum opus, which she accomplished, you know, composed at the age of seven or eight. But she didn't do this where anybody could be certain that it wasn't her mother. Right. And I'm guessing quite a bit of the work is hers. I'm, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. All right, all right. But clearly, because her mom has turned her into this kind of weirdo, uh, this book about American history begins... In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. I know this work. She's the first person to coin that little couplet that school children still know today. Wow. But it goes on. And found this land, land of the free, beloved by you, beloved by me. This is also believable as the poetry of a nine-year-old who has been listening to Virgil and Tennyson since the cradle. Right. Where she can kind of mimic the cadences of it, but it still sounds childlike. Yeah. Uh, and it goes on. So there's ver couplets about Henry Hudson, William Penn. Paul Revere, and all with their dates. In 1863, each slave was told that he was free by Lincoln, with whom few compare in being kind and just and fair. So awful, awful doggerel, but, you know, designed for a pedagogical purpose. Uh-huh. Her hundreds of other poems are sadly forgotten today. But it wasn't just poetry. By nine, she was a classical pianist, skilled painter. She had written three more books by the age of nine, including her memoir. <laughs> 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 which is called Nine Years of Life. Oh, Nine Years of Life. But the thing is, she did have an amusing, you know, a, a really one-of-a-kind childhood. Um, her mother realized this was a path to fame in, in the new century and kind of wanted to be the face of the child prodigy industry. So it wasn't just going to Chautauqua. She, would, she actually started an organization called the League for Fostering Genius, uh-huh. Where she would f go around Europe and uh, the Eastern Seaboard collecting 
the brightest kids she could find. And, and this is the weird part, like anything after the end is going to be weird, right? Yeah, like yeah, what, yeah, is, right. what is this she going to do with these bad. kids? Interbreed them? <laughs> yeah. It's, is it eugenics? <laughs> it's got to be eugenics, right? In this case, she wants to connect them with rich patrons Uh-oh. who might bankroll their future feats. Oh, Ken, how did we miss out on this? We could have been, why didn't our mothers whore us out? I've been looking for a rich patron my whole life. And I'm sure the world is full of rich old men looking for eight-year-old, bright eight-year-old boys. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I missed my calling. For, for one thing or another. Well, so this is all part of this school that we still, uh, there's still a portion of the people in the world who think that we're all geniuses. We just weren't showered with a mother's love or we didn't, we weren't given the freedom to be our natural brilliant self. Winifred is kind of an argument for that. Her mom had a had an idea. She had a theory and went for it 24-7 and turned out a little Winifred Sr. Huh. Maybe it's true. Like maybe we are just seeing that the, the potential of each human is so great. You know, but as a parent, becoming a parent instantly changes that for you because, you know, if you, if you have two kids, they are just different out of the box. Sure. And you realize that the thing that worked with him would not have worked with her and vice versa. And they have different, you know, I will always say that my kids are both so smart and I love them equally. Yes. You know, the old, the old lie, but they're smart in totally different ways. Yes. Like my daughter has the creative project she's always working on. And my son is very much do the assignment, stay on top of the assignment. Maybe while the teacher with a nice turn of phrase, you know, he can, he can do what I did and kind of sound like he knows what he's talking about. Both of your kids are excellent at rolling their eyes at you, however. That's the I've only noticed. skill. Have you seen that? <laughs> I have. And they do it very differently. They roll their eyes in different directions. See? See? There's one <laughs> clockwise and one counterclockwise. I actually did have two children, and uh, one of them I experimented on by depriving them of healthy food. <laughs> you never taught them English to see if they would start to learn the tongue of That's Adam right. and Eve if left in a dark, silent room. One of them could speak French but read English. <laughs> And then eventually I realized I had failed in that experiment and I uh, sold him off to the Navy. But Winifred Sackville Stoner Sr. thought this was, you know, her mission in life. She essentially created a superhero team for child prodigies, the League for Fostering Genius, and told the New York Times, surely there is no better way in which to spend one's millions than for America's new tycoon class. Right. To be uh, showering money on little geniuses. But, you know... I guess maybe she would bridle at the idea that anyone can do it because... It bristle. Ma- bristle at the idea. She could bristle and bridle, surely. How do you bridle at an idea? Oh, you... <laughs> oh, are the, is this like flaunt and flout where people uh, are always switching them incorrectly? I think. Do you bridle at an idea? I don't know. Let's say she would bristle. Yeah, let's... Okay, idea. she bristles. Uh, because she wants to believe that her daughter is special. Right, of course. This isn't just a thing where any old kid who... Uh, continues to breastfeed until she's 11, <laughs> can be a genius. This was an, there was a vogue for child prodigies at the time in America. I assume, you know, going hand in hand with the new century and the optimism of the, of the roaring 20s was our new sciences and efficiencies will give us an amazing edge that will make this country even greater. Has there ever been a case, I mean, you would know this maybe better than anyone, where a Seven-year-old who wrote books in Esperanto actually, actually grew up to do anything as a grown. I met. I'm the only one. You're the one. No, do you know? And the I wouldn't. I don't count. Blue do, ribbon at the fair. Do you know Michael Kupperman, the cartoonist of Snake and Bacon? No, I don't know any of those words. One of America's few funny kind of alt cartoonists. I bet you've seen his. But work. internet cartoonist. No. Uh, he, he's in newspapers. 
Yeah. Snake and Bacon. Tales designed to thrill. He's one of the only guys who's actually funny to me. His dad, he just wrote a memoir this year, kind of his first serious work of his dad, Joel Kupperman, who was one of the 40s quiz kids. There are so, so many pictures of literal snakes with bacon. Photographs of like snakes eating bacon? Yeah, there's even a picture of a snake that is a piece of bacon. In Kupperman's work, snake and bacon are cops. Oh. Snake always says, no matter what happens, you know, the chief will be like, we got got a case for you. And snake will say, and bacon will say, I'm crispy when fried. Uh And then the chief will be like, we got another body. And snake will say, and bacon will say, try me on a sandwich with lettuce and tomato. I have seen this work and I do like it. His dad, Joel Kupperman, was one of the 40s quiz kids, so a child prodigy. And he he just wrote a memoir about how it, that kind of brush with early fame and being told you're a special little genius flower did not serve his dad well. His dad essentially became a recluse for the last 50 years of his life, just kind of teaching in anonymity in Connecticut and kind of deeply broken by... But this was his father, right? The, yes. The, and also, Snake and Bacon is, although... A considerable accomplishment, not a salt vaccine. No, either. this is a no. This is a counterexample of the of the young prodigy. Although one of the quiz kids, a, a kid named Harv, actually be, uh, produced the first uh, like four of the first five Star Trek movies. Oh, including the good one with the whales. Again, a medium accomplishment. <laughs> it's true that in the nineteen thirties <laughs> and forties there were lots of media there were stories written catching up with these kids from the the League of for Fostering Genius. This prodigy boom. Of the 20s, because people could not get enough of reading about these kids who could read Egyptian hieroglyphics in diapers. Right. And all these stories would find them kind of working in shabby offices, having sad lives. Preferring not to. And sadly, this is also the case of with Winifred Sackville Stoner Jr. Are you you about to tell us that in the future, Columbus was no longer worthy of a poem and people felt like this was a crime against humanity. Honestly, that's pretty good. How many of us write one couplet that every school child knows? It was the schoolhouse rock of the sure. of the 1920s. It's how you remember when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Or if you know the date, what color the ocean was that year. <laughs> what happened in 1492? <laughs> uh, by the age of 18, she's quoted in the New York Times as saying, having been erroneously classed as a genius, I am always deeply in sympathy with young people who are dragged into publicity because they have accomplished a few things that so-called normal children have not done. Oh, she hates her mother. She is already chafing. Oh, she hates her so much. So much. There is nothing more terrible for any child than to be put up as an example of precocity and to be expected to shine in all things and at all times. No so-called genius or prodigy can speak more feelingly on this subject than I. So true. Look how she wants to bring down her mom's whole tower of educational theory. Destroy your mother in order to survive. Uh, This is like the opposite of goodwill hunting. (laughs) Just sneaking into MIT and drawing dicks on the blackboard. (laughs) In 1921, uh, when I, by my math, she's 19, but which the newspapers say she's 16. Right. Or 24. (laughs) Right. So she doesn't hear this from her mom. Isn't it true though, that the moms who who bristle or bridle, bristle most at their moms, the daughters who who Bryce most of their moms kind of have turned into them. Sure. Uh, Lacquered hair. She has run away with Count Philippe Clinton de Bruges, a French nobleman, composer, Junior. and poet. <laughs> Junior. A mere 13 days after meeting him. So think what she's thinking, like, this will piss off Winifred Sr. Although, I mean, to marry a count? 
Well, that's therein lies the not really a count. A year later, (laughs) she finds out from friends that he's actually Charles Philip Christian Bruch. Also a great name. A a great name, but a penniless German with a long Uh, criminal record for con artistry and wiretapping. Who's one of these guys who's been going around pretending to be French royalty and is in fact just bilking young heiresses out of their money. When I wonder about my potential, uh, that my squandered potential, I often think some of my squandered potential, maybe I should have been like a bilko artist. You think you would be uh, good at bunko? I'm sorry, bunko artist. Bilko was a sergeant on a on a, a 50 bilko sitcom. artist. You you have a very good Phil Silver's impression that you've been <laughs> that you've been trying to trot out. Bunko artist. Yeah, I think you could do it. I mean, anybody who's a fluid raconteur and or podcaster, right, can can make in. odd claims about themselves at parties, right. You kind of are a bunko artist. Right? Wait a minute! No, I'm not. I All just... my stories are 110 percent true. <laughs> So you can read a lot of her later life as not just rebelling against, not just kind of having been broken by being in the spotlight, but really wanting to stick it to mom. Mm. Um, there's a series of bad marriages. Uh, so at, when she finds out that uh, Count Philippe Clinton de Bruges is not the Count de Bruges at all, she's going to confront him. And just that same month, she hears from a friend that he's died in a car accident in Mexico City. They weren't living together. Apparently not. He oh. was off having adventures with new heiresses. So she, in 1925, she marries a nice man named Louis Hyman, but divorces him two years later, and everything she does makes the paper. She's now in a bad situation. So when Louis Hyman tells a reporter that he could not put up with her anymore and she couldn't even make a good cup of coffee, think how that goes over, you know. You can imagine the editorial cartoon. Kid who could speak Esperanto and Icelandic uh, at, make at age four uh. cannot make a decent cup of coffee. George Bush Sr. doesn't know how, how much a loaf of bread is. Exactly. I mean, maybe that's it. Being a, a bit of a child of privilege with this eccentric childhood, there were certain life skills that escaped her. After her marriage to Lewis Hyman fails, she becomes engaged to the paper, say, to Bainbridge Colby, I think, who was in Woodrow Wilson's cabinet. But during this engagement to Mr. Colby, she is suddenly summoned from her Central Park West apartment to a swanky New York hotel, Uh-oh. only to find that Count de Bruche is in the lobby alive. <sighs> What? And knows that she's a bigamist and is now engaged to a former cabinet member and is seeking to capitalize on the situation. Spoiler alert. And he thinks she won't go to the papers, but he has reckoned wrongly with our publicity-crazy mom-shaming Winifred Jr., who immediately goes to the papers to announce her first husband's perfidy and to file for an annulment to try to get rid of this guy. She makes a pretty good little, like, uh, chubby-cheeked flapper. Are you, You're looking at a picture? I'm looking at her. She's got the, the like, uh, red lipstick kind of done in, uh, into a little pucker. Like a Shirley Temple kind of a yeah, vibe. Yeah, and, and a little bob. Uh, her last appearance in the papers, as her life gets increasingly sordid, in 1937, she goes to the DA to complain about another beau who has apparently stolen $7,000 in jewelry. She's easy to talk into stuff, this Winifred. Yeah. Uh, while she's there making her complaint, two detectives show up with an arrest warrant for her. Petty larceny and bail jumping for running out on a hotel bill. Is it snake and bacon? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one of them says, and the other one says, crumble me over a salad. <laughs> so, you know, it does not appear to be a good trajectory for young Winifred. She ends up, I think she marries four times. I don't know if we're counting the bigamist or not. Hmm. And for the last 30 years, she lives until 1983. Wow. But for the last 50 years of her life, she's essentially 
a recluse, not just, unlike Michael Kupperman's dad. Just speaking Esperanto and Icelandic to herself. She's got back at mom. She has nothing left to prove. Maybe she's inherited a little money and she stays out of the public eye. Mm. But, you know, this is always the risk. When you tell a smart kid they're a smart kid and you make the, you kind of make that their identity. In light of this, I'd say you did pretty darn well. And that concludes Winifred Sackville Stoner Jr. Entry 1229.MT1125. Certificate number 35551 in the Omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, it almost certainly will be full of genius cows and chickens. Esperantists. Fluent Esperantists all. Uh, At some point, we're going to have to put this in Esperanto before we put the golden records into the that's time right. capsule in Svalbard. It'll be, the, it'll be the only way that people will be able to interpret We want to make sure that people of all cultures can understand this record when they find it. I, I heard that and I thought it was you making snake and bacon sounds, but it was actually your diet Dr. Pepper. Try me with Swiss cheese and an omelet. <laughs> yes, that was me opening a soda. My brother does this signature move where he'll he'll wait for a noisy part of the movie and then he'll go <coughs> with the soda he snuck in. Your brother, what a wag. He's going to listen to this show, so someday he'll hear that, but he, he wants to binge every episode of my brother, my brother, and me first. Oh, well, that will only take him 40 years. That's the problem. I said, you'll never get to my show. You can't binge in a podcast with 400-something episodes. No, there are a lot of podcasts. Uh, you can find us at Omnibus Project. You can find Ken at Ken Jennings. You can find me at John Roderick. You can find Winifred Stoner at Winifred Stoner Jr. All squandering our early potential. You can go to Instagram and find me at John Roderick. You cannot find Ken, although he's there lurking, creeping. Creeping on teens. Yeah, we talked about we talked about what the what the uh, line of being a man of our age and what constitutes creeping. Almost. 100% of yeah. online behavior. If, Everything if, if we do man, is age. now creepy, no matter what we're trying to do. John and I are both reply guys online. Look us up. <laughs> see, see what we're see what we're saying uh, to the ladies today. I'm just on Amazon trying to get some paper towels, and it's, uh, it's creepy for some reason. <laughs> uh, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com with all of your great ideas for shows. Uh, you can go to Facebook and hang out with the Futurelings who are fun most of the time. And they seem like little prodigies themselves. A lot of them are. A lot of smart people. They seem a lot so of... smart. Like, they, they correct us when we get stuff wrong. That's they right. say, have you, do you, have you heard of this? And I, and I never have. They're extremely irritated by my various pronunciations. They cannot square the fact that, on the one hand, we are compiling all human knowledge, and on the other hand, we cannot seem to master even the simplest facts. That we don't know what the word couple means. Is it bridal the, or bristle? Your southern accent sounds like foghorn leghorn, and that appalls them. All this is terrible. Uh, mail us things that you think would be of interest to us at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Listeners, we are sure you are very smart. Mm-hmm. I guess you're not supposed to say that. That's, that's what they say now, by the way. Like, Don't tell them they're smart. Tell them they did a good job. Tell them they did great. Listeners, you are doing a great job. You have grit and determination and perseverance. You are living in a wasted, lifeless earth, and you <laughs> still are listening to podcasts. Mm-hmm. You got On some level, John, you have to admire that. I do. You know, our podcast is hard to listen to, and you are doing a good <laughs> job. 
you have somehow made it to the end of one. From our vantage point here in your distant past, we have no idea how long our enterprise will survive because we don't know how long our civilization will survive. We hope and pray, heaven forfend, that the cataclysm will be held off, may never come, but the worst comes soon. This recording, like every one of our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you, Esperanto speakers, soon for another entry in the Omnibus. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.